Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Aaron Mack. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, July 23rd. On today's show, we'll talk about Facebook's plans to create a cryptocurrency called Libra. The company says the goal is to make banking easier for underserved communities around the world. But lawmakers and experts have their doubts. One of those experts is Chris Brummer, a professor at Georgetown University Law Center and the host of the podcast Fintech Beat. I'll talk to him about his concerns. After the interview, my colleague Shannon Paulus will join me for Don't Close My Tabs, where we'll talk about the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. Last week, there were two congressional hearings about Facebook's plans to create a global cryptocurrency called Libra. The company says that this will help people who don't have bank accounts. It'll also make it easier to transmit money between countries. But lawmakers are skeptical about the proposal, especially when it comes to regulating the currency. Based on a white paper that Facebook released last month, it's not clear that they really thought through everything. What we know for now is that Libra will be pegged to a raft of conventional currencies, such as the U.S. dollar and the euro. There will also be a Libra association, which will be a committee of major companies like Uber and PayPal that will govern the currency. This is a complicated area that I'm personally having some trouble understanding, but Libra could be immensely impactful for the way we make payments. Our next guest is one of the people who testified very convincingly during the House congressional hearing, and I'm hoping he can help walk us through this. Chris Brummer is a law professor at Georgetown University Law Center and the host of the podcast Fintech Beat. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So first off, can you explain to us the basics of what Facebook is trying to do with Libra? Well, I can certainly explain to you the basics as I understand them, uh, as they've been articulated uh, in the white paper and uh, to Congress, because you know there were, I think, some some mid-course adjustments made, sort of here and there in the testimony by David Marcus, who's the, the co-founder of, of something called the Calibro Wallet, which is supposed to be holding uh, these mm-hmm. uh, cryptocurrencies. But honestly, you made a really good introduction just in at, at the outset. Um, Libra is a kind of uh, digital asset. Uh, there's a little bit of a debate going on right now as to should you call it a cryptocurrency or should you call it something else. But at the end of the day, it's a digital asset, a virtual currency, a cryptocurrency where a blockchain is going to be deployed. And uh, this cryptocurrency is going to trade on that blockchain. It'll be backed by some kind of reserve of, of, of assets, as, as you've already mentioned, uh, and, and they will include not just fiat currencies, not just government currencies, but also uh, some government bonds. And then you're going to have an association, a governance mechanism called the Libra Association to uh, supervise the system. I just want to clarify for listeners, blockchain is the technology that keeps track of cryptocurrency transactions. So is it the the backing and the Libra Association, is that what differentiates Libra from other cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ethereum? Yeah, so Bitcoin is a kind of an, an Ethereum. These are all self-referential, right? Like the, the value mm-hmm. of Bitcoin is Bitcoin. And right. when uh, what Libra is trying to do is, is to create trust in its uh, cryptocurrency by saying we actually have something uh, real in the world that's standing behind our cryptocurrency. But precisely therein, it kind of generates some, some problems for them. So this has also been compared to kind of a payment system like Venmo or PayPal. Um, is this 
that different from those? Uh, is this going to be an improvement on that kind of system? So that's really difficult to say because not all the details have been spelled out, right? But as far as Facebook mm -hmm. has said, this is going to be a global currency uh, that would allow payments that are presumably even faster and to allow payments in a way that costs the user even less money. Uh, and, and, and the platform on which it would be built would be supported by a kind of global consortium of major technology uh, companies. And so the utility value and the kinds of applications built on that infrastructure would presumably be uh, much larger than that, that, with, that, that which is currently available on something like, like Venmo. I see. So is that why Facebook is trying to move into the cryptocurrency space? Is it just that it's going to be easier to use for um, people to send money through this uh, Calibra wallet and Libra currency? So that is a question that I get all the time because no one is, is exactly certain what are the motives for Facebook um, because you can think of a, a number of stories. So one story is, uh, well, the way this is operating a normal person has to kind of hand over money uh, to Facebook, and Facebook is able to use that money and kind of invest on the float. In other words, uh, when you hand over your money, they're not paying you interest on the money that they're holding on your account, and they're able to earn interest on that money. So there's one story that says this is a great sort of revenue generation opportunity for Facebook because they can get all this money from all over the world and they don't have to pay anyone interest on it. The other story says, no, what Facebook really wants, you know, Facebook really doesn't care about the, the, this particular cryptocurrency, but what they want to do is build applications that ultimately increase the amount of time people use and spend on the Facebook platform, right? And so mm -hmm. that theory says, the more time they, they spend on Facebook, um, sort of moving money around, either by using the Libra wallet or other kinds of apps designed to support uh, Libra, the more valuable Facebook as a company becomes because its own internal metrics about the platform, its popularity of the platform. Uh, basically, it's an, it, the theory is it's an ability for Facebook to become a super app as opposed to just sort of a, a, a normal global dominant app. So it's like about decreasing friction between switching platforms and everything. Um, that, that's that right. Sense. And you're able to, to, to keep people on your platform. I, I think there's a, an interesting question or, that I've heard, a theory that says, look, you know, Facebook, its major competitive advantage are the network effects that it has that so many people already use it. But can someone come around and theoretically reinvent uh, or, or create an alternative um, social networking platform? And the, as high as the barrier to entry is, for Facebook, it's actually lower than the barriers of entry to like other kinds of big tech firms. Like replicating Amazon is going to be is is theoretically much more difficult than replicating Facebook. But if Facebook is able to build itself into some kind of super app, the theory goes, you know, it's able to consolidate um, uh, its own position. Now, I, I don't know, you know, if any of those stories are true, but it's just to highlight the fact that there are different reasons why Facebook could theoretically be interested. I mean, there's another theory that says this is a way of gaining more data, um, not just social data, but more financial data. I mean, there are all kinds of different theories, uh, but explicitly Facebook is saying that their only interest is to promote cross-border banking and uh, financial inclusion for the unbanked. But most observers 
can see other more immediate financial reasons why they may be deciding to opt into this financial services space. Right. That always seems to be the case. <laughs> um, so uh, the title of your testimony before Congress last week was uh, 99 Problems, and I assume that's a Jay-Z reference. Um, so why did you choose that's that title? Right. And Okay. I'm, I'm glad I'm right with that. <laughs> um, yeah. So why did you choose that title, and what was like the main thrust of your testimony? Well, I mean, you know, I was I was trying to think through the, the testimony uh, to begin with, and I was driving around a little bit in my car, and I'm thinking to myself, man, I mean, there are a lot of things, you know, testifying is to Congress is always difficult, but it's it's even more difficult when you don't know exactly the full content of, of, of the object of what you're talking about, because the white paper mm -hmm. itself is very amorphous. It doesn't provide a whole lot of detail. And there are just so many different kinds of questions, challenges, and, and problems with not just the the substance, but I was also, you know, highlighting in my testimony the, the process, like how they're unveiling this, and the document of sort of ginning up interest in it without having solved or thought through so many of the problems. You know that that in and of itself is was a little bit disappointing and one of the ninety nine problems. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Chris Brummer, a law professor at Georgetown University Law Center and the host of the podcast Fintech Beat. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So I'm assuming you've read a lot of white papers for other cryptocurrencies. I mean, how did this stack up to other things you've read? Well, you know, what was so unusual and surprising about the Libra white paper is, you know, uh, and I've been to Congress before and I testified before about the fact that so many of these white papers are hyperbolic and they make all these big promises, you know, um, uh, that our cryptocurrency can, you know, if you have a cavity, we can cure the cavity or something. Um, and that th there aren't uh, a lot of details uh, that really allow the prospective consumer or purchaser to, you know, make any kind of wise decision as to whether or not they should purchase it or or not. And I never really seriously thought about that being a, a challenge for a global multinational company, a very sophisticated company with all kinds of engineers and in-house lawyers and, 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 and to, to see a white paper that, though perhaps not indulging in uh, the same extreme behavior as you would see in, in some of these cash-strapped startups, you saw a lot of it uh, in terms of the lack of detail and at times conflicting statements that were made. And, and really the lack and absence of a very clear, basic, uh, and straightforward cautionary language while they were rolling out this product. I mean, you have like a, this was a global marketing campaign and they set up this, you know, this, this website uh, to focus the world's attention on this new uh, product. 
and, and by the way, the last section of my of my testimony was called "Allow Me to Reintroduce Myself," which is another. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. I saw that. <laughs> and you know, you know, so they're here they are with their public service announcement, you know, and, <laughs> and and what they're trying to do is like you know they are reintroducing themselves, saying we're not just a kind of social media company; we are a financial services company. And the, here's this new product. You know, they're not just trying to brainstorm with people to get their their views. You know, uh, they're trying to to gin up interest to condition the market. And yet there's just an absence of very basic, uh, straightforward uh, language there that I think would have been very, very helpful to people who are being introduced to this for the first time. So speaking of big promises, one of the big promises that this white paper makes is that it's going to help people who don't have access to bank accounts. Um, if it works, would it actually help those people? So what makes that question a little bit complicated is the way that they have structured this thing is one that kind of screams like regulation. In other words, it, it looks like something kind of smells like something that you would expect to be regulated. And specifically, mm -hmm. it looks a lot like something called um, an ETF or exchange trade fund, a money market account. And usually for those kinds of vehicles, you would have to set up an account anyway in order to access those those products. And one uh, regulator I was talking to sort of kind of surmised, well, how much are you going to really improve access to banking services where given the way you've structured this vehicle under current regs and regulations and in light of sort of normal practice, you'd still have to set up some kind of account at the very least with the brokerage. So is it more likely that an unbanked person is going to be able to set up an account with the brokerage or is it more likely right. that someone's going to be able to set up an account with the bank? Now, it, I thought that was like a really interesting observation. Potentially, it may help the underbanked, perhaps, right? So if you can mm -hmm. still set up an account and, it, and, and yet are not able to enjoy the quality or speed or, or you know, of, of certain kinds of financial features, maybe if they you know, were able to solve some of your other problems, I suppose potentially you could have that as a kind of advantage. But again, without the details, it's just very hard to make a clear assessment. Yeah. So one of your biggest criticisms during the hearing was that the white paper doesn't let Libra holders know that they're at risk of losing their money. Um, how could this happen? Yeah, I mean, it could happen a lot of different ways, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, part of it is that you would normally say with this kind of product, hey, you can lose some of your money if you hold this product. And you you could lose part of your money because it's being backed. And the way in which they use the word backed is complicated because it shifts from sort of one meaning of the word backed to another meaning of the word backed. And you can't tell if backed means like guaranteed by certain kinds of money uh, that, that they're storing mm -hmm. in some kind of reserve, or is it backed in the sense of just being pegged to a certain amount of money. But leaving that to the side for the moment, you can, at a minimum, if there are different currencies and investments that are in the Libra reserve and any of those investments uh, diminish in value, uh, or if there is a run or, on any of those investments or a large-scale redemption of any of the assets in that basket, then the Libra itself is going to lose money. Um, now, they would like to say, well, you know, what we're really doing is we're creating a kind of a hedge. So we're including all kinds of different assets in this basket. And because we are, 
it's going to be stable. And they have this language, which is kind of problematic because they're saying just like the number of euros that you use today to buy coffee will be the same number of euros tomorrow. You know, the Libra sort of mm -hmm. works the same way. They're implying that the purchasing power of the Libra will remain stable over time. And, and no one really knows if that's the case because you can always have uh, problems with any of the assets in that basket. And just by not saying that is really problematic. And I'd like to add the other thing, which makes it a little bit different from other you know, baskets and, and financial products, is that you have the operational risk and the possibility of a run on the Libra token itself. So imagine if there is a hack or malware sort of inserted in, uh, that, that infiltrates the system. People may say, I don't want to hold this. I mean, I don't, I don't want to put myself at risk. And you could have a large-scale redemption. Or you know, we're hearing about the FTC fines and privacy fines. Facebook is making you know, some clear promises saying that there will be safeguards sort of separating the Calibra wallet from Facebook, that the information will not be shared with the parent company. Well, you know, what if that safeguard was not as robust as people imagined and they woke up one day to know that their financial information was somehow being um, accessed by Facebook or members of the Libra Association? You can imagine these large scale redemptions, right? So you can have a run not only on the underlying assets in the Libra Reserve, but there are different kinds of scenarios from cybersecurity to malware to you know, uh, problems with the way in which the entire project is being uh, executed that can lead to runs on the Libra token itself. And people could, could find themselves with Libra tokens that have uh, significantly diminished purchasing power. And, and that again is something that, you know, if, if you wanna use it, you should at least know what kinds of risks uh, can arise. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Chris Brummer right after this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So uh, if this ever does come out, I mean, what should people look out for when they're deciding whether or not to, to buy Libra? Um, will there be like indicators that will tell them that this is they've thought through this or not? Well, this is why, you know, I, I said all the time, if it's not a security, right, there are at least securities-like features to this thing uh, that would suggest that certain kinds of disclosures really need to be made. And some of those core kinds of disclosures that a consumer would need to know is that you can lose part of your money. Uh, you, I think people need to know what are the motives behind the larger project. You know, is, is this a profit-making enterprise? Uh, where, because 
some of the interest generated by the reserve portfolio, um, because you know they're going to invest it in things and they'll get returns based on those interests on that interest after that you're paying for your operational expenses it's ultimately going to be given back to some of the investors in the project right and as a result you know there is a, a certain profit motive embedded in uh, this particular project and that could in turn lead to changes in policy so right now they're saying we're only going to invest in very safe low-risk assets well if you're deriving certain kinds of returns from how the reserve is ultimately managed, well, that could lead to incentives by the Libra Association to instruct the director of the reserve to incrementally perhaps invest in higher risk assets. So, you know, the things you would want to know is, as you would in, in most investment vehicles, like what is the management philosophy? What are they actually going to do with your money? What are the obligations of sort of the middlemen in the structure. Like do, if you present your coin, must they uh, liquidate You know, some of the backed currencies? Are, are you guaranteed um, access to the assets in the reserve portfolio? What are the conflicts of interest perhaps uh, between some of the middlemen and even Libra Association members with one another? How are these conflicts managed? These are kind of really basic questions that I don't think are intended to be tricky, but they are the kinds of basic questions that people would at least have the right to know and should have the right to know. And and I think that Facebook really should understand that if you want to move into financial services and you know once you start to do things with other people's money, uh, <laughs> rules and regulations usually start to attach. Uh, to those kinds of transactions. Yeah, so it seems like lawmakers during the hearing were trying to get to the bottom of some of these questions. Um, I, I just wanted to get a sense of what you made of their kind of comments during the hearing. Do you think they were paying attention to the right things? So I think that uh, certainly in the House of Representatives, I mean, I was struck by how prepared many of them were. You know, uh, they clearly put in a significant amount of time to try to think through some of the issues uh, that were being brought up. Um, the, the banking system relies on trust. And underneath a lot of the questions was, you know, not only can we trust you Facebook, but will people be able to trust your product so that it's not risky uh, systemically or, or otherwise? And I think that people were really concerned about the potential for uh, money laundering, you know, to, to know well, what kind of safeguards do you have if you're going to create this global system for people to enter into your payment system in a weekly regulated jurisdiction? Uh, because once you get sort of bad guys in your system, it's really hard to get them out. Uh, and, and people were rightly trying to figure out, uh, well, what kind of systemic risks would arise given your goal of uh, creating a global alternative payment system with billions of people. I mean, the, the very scale of the ambition was such that, you know, you can't help but wonder, well, what kinds of things can go wrong uh, if the unexpected arises? I think that they were very uh, focused on the fact that whatever promises uh, Facebook was making, those promises would not necessarily be honored 
not necessarily just because you know you may have questions about whether or not Facebook uh, is sort of dependable in terms of the promises that it makes, but just because the Libra Association is itself established, uh, according to the white paper, it's going to be established in a way where changes in course can always be made depending on the voting of the members of that association. So uh, if Facebook is only going to be one of possibly a hundred members of the Libra Association, there were naturally questions about, well, you know, how credible are your guarantees, A, that you're going to be doing or following a certain course in the short term, and then B, in the longer term, how do we know that there won't be any changes in policy that introduce new risks to consumers or, or, or to the financial system? Yeah, and I guess one of the people who has a lot of questions for Facebook is Congresswoman Maxine Waters. Uh, she proposed a she moratorium does. Yeah, exactly. As you saw, um, she proposed a moratorium on the development of Libra until lawmakers and regulators can learn more about it. I mean, is this the way to go? Do we need to put the brakes on yeah, or push I, the brakes I, on this? I, I think on so many instances, I was struck by the, the answer basically being, oh, well, you know, um, that's why we're doing this to get feedback or, you know, we're still working through these questions. And, you know, one of the reasons why I, I kind of mentioned that this thing has a lot of securities-like features is because whenever you have a security, so let's say if you want to do an initial public offering, an IPO, right? Like the way that you do it, you don't go about saying, hey, everyone, I'm going to do this IPO and here's how great my company is. And then the regulators kind of respond to you. And you say, oh, I'm not really doing an IPO. I'm just trying to get feedback. <laughs> you know, the way that you mm -hmm, do it, like there's like a process, right? And there's a process mm -hmm. by which you, you know, you go about and you, you share certain kinds of information. Um, you're not necessarily trying to create a global marketing campaign. You know, there are other ways to sort of get feedback from regulators. I mean, there's email, there's, uh, there's the telephone, there are carrier pigeons. There are lots of ways to get feedback mm -hmm. from regulators. <laughs> other than, you know, creating a global marketing campaign. And uh, normally, you know, as you learn in sort of like in law school and these classes, like gun, there's something called gun jumping. And if you don't sort of follow the procedural rules, then uh, the securities regulators say, look, you know, you're going to have to delay your offering. You know, you're going to have to delay the rollout of uh, this particular financial product. So, so moving forward, what, what do we keep an eye on? Um, what can we expect from Congress or regulators or Facebook itself? So I, uh, I think a, a couple of things are going to happen. Number one, up to this point in time, this has been largely a, although not exclusively, but largely a U.S. story, right? Because we have had the U.S. Congress sort of weigh in, weighing in by the U.S. Congress as well as the president of the United States, Donald Trump, talking about this. But internationally, people are going to weigh in as well. Uh, it appears at this point in time that the white paper had not been, you know, very widely distributed internationally. Um, certainly, even before its official rollout, India, which is the country with like the most unbanked people, uh, basically said that they don't really want anything to do with this particular project. Um, uh, and it'll be very interesting to see. Um, you know, how things play out in Europe. But this story is going to ultimately take on an international dimension because they're looking to set up an international payment system. And I suspect that what will happen will be some backpedaling uh, by Facebook 
uh, to sort of think through, well, how can we salvage this project uh, to make it more amenable uh, with regulators and, and with folks on the Hill? Uh, and how can we make this also more amenable with other members of the Libra Association? I think one thing to keep your eye out on will be, you know, will the members of the Libra Association stick with it? Are they going to leave? Are they going to rethink their positions? And also keeping an eye out on what new members, if any, there will be uh, to the Libra Association and sort of thinking through, well, what are their interests? What are their, what's their background? Uh, and I think that's going to be extremely interesting, again, to see how that specifically uh, plays out if, and, I, and I, I think it's worth saying if, if the project continues at all, there will be some significant changes. Just looking at what those changes are is, is going to be uh, an important matter of concern for regulators and, again, for the international regulatory community writ large. Well, thanks so much for helping us to untangle the beginning. It was really my, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, one final quick break, and then my colleague Shannon Paulus will join me for this week's edition of Don't Close My Tabs. Okay, now it's time for Don't Close My Tabs. Joining me is my colleague Shannon Paulus. She'll be hosting the show next week. Hey, Shannon. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? All right, you? Pretty good. So what's your tab for this week? Um, my tab is an interview um, on BuzzFeedNews.com with the author of a book called Space Dogs, the story of the celebrated canine cosmonauts. And I think a lot of people have heard about Laika, the first dog to go into orbit. But I didn't know that the Russians actually experimented with a whole little crew of astronaut dogs um, before and after her, um, including two that made a round trip to orbit and back and became like Earth celebrities afterwards. And the interview has a lot of cute pictures interspersed. Um, Wait, so what happens to the dogs after they come back? I think that they just like live out their life in retirement on Earth. Um, they're <laughs> probably studied to see if they're like, okay. So this is mostly in the 50s and 60s, I'm assuming? Yeah, I think this was like definitely 60s, maybe a little bit earlier than that. Okay. And what's your tab for this week? So my tab this week is a stunt piece in the New York Times. It's titled, My Frantic Life as a Cab-Dodging, Tip-Chasing, Food App Delivery Man. Uh, so reporter Andy Newman basically worked as a delivery person for food apps in New York for a few days. Um, he takes you through how hectic and dangerous it can be to bike up and down the city to get customers their pad thai or whatever. Um, so obviously you can't make a lot of money delivering from just one app. So you end up juggling orders from Uber Eats and Caviar and Grubhub all at the same time. And even then you're probably earning less than minimum wage. Uh, in an hour, you might deliver three orders from three different apps, and they make people go crazy distances in very little time, which is, of course, very dangerous in New York traffic. And the part that seems to be getting the most attention from readers is about tipping. Uh, so two-thirds of Newman's customers didn't tip. He did get tips using DoorDash, but it turns out that when customers tip using the app, the company actually pockets the extra money, so you end up getting the same base fare. Uh, so the moral of the story seems to be that you should always tip your delivery people and you should always tip in cash. Interesting. So I'm like halfway through this piece and I'm wondering um, if this is going to change my outlook on using delivery services at all. Is that the case for you? Yeah, it's a conundrum because 
if you don't use them, I mean, you're taking business away from people who have are now making their livelihood on this, but it's also a little exploitative. Um, I think uh, April Glazer, the former host of the show, actually just wrote a piece for Slate Today about how to be um, kind of courteous to people who are delivering uh, using these apps, like how you tip using each app and what tipping method will be best for uh, certain people. Interesting. Yeah. That's kind of the same conclusion I came to um, with going to nail salons after the New York Times expose on how nail salons treat their workers really badly. Oh, is, I see. you know, I'll still go, but I'll just give a really hefty tip. Right. It's right, not a perfect solution, but it's. Yeah. It's, so, do you use a lot of food delivery apps? I do. Yeah. Um, more than I would like to. And I, I think <laughs> that. Um, this piece, at the very least, has made me want to uh, make an effort to get cash and keep that on hand rather than just – I usually just tip the default amount, whatever that is. Um, mm-hmm. And I have no idea if that goes to the people delivering my food or not. Yeah, it's interesting. This, this piece made me think a lot about cashless economies and how they end up hurting a lot of people. Um, it just gives big companies a lot of control over the flow of money. And I know a lot of Cities now are banning cashless stores because it's just so inconvenient for people who don't have access to credit cards. Um, yeah, that's. I think that's like a big subtext to everything that happened in the piece. Yeah, or even just like, I feel like it's more humane to use cash if you're going to a bodega or a corner store or mom mm-hmm. and pop shop um, because you're not making these people running a small business take the hit from the credit card company. Yeah, so I guess the moral is always carry cash too. I'm so bad at it, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's our show. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Aaron T. Mack. Thanks again to our guest, Chris Brummer. If you want to hear more from him, his podcast is called Fintech Beat. And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways large and small. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks also to Danielle Hewitt, who engineered for us in D.C. today. We'll see you all next week. 